electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Peloton will reopen at 1.07 p.m. CNBC.com's Lauren Thomas is standing by. She just broke this story. She's going to give us all the details she has in just a moment. Elsewhere in the markets, RK is rallying. The Chinese stocks are flying. The semis are higher. Bang is mostly in the green, and the Nasdaq is leading the rally today. Growth has been sold off hard, but we'll speak to someone who says the stocks might be ready for a comeback. Speaking of China, the central bank cuts rates while most of the rest of the world is talking about hikes. We'll look at why and whether you should fade today's rally if the Chinese economy is headed for a slowdown. And in earnings exchange, we're drilling and chilling. We're getting you ready for Netflix and a few more as the big reports get set to come out. But let's start with Dom Chu with the latest market numbers, Dom. All right. So the market numbers right now are a generally positive theme throughout the course of today's session so far, albeit off the session highs. Just to give you some context, we are currently up 300 points in the Dow, very respectable. We we were up 461 points at the high, so a pretty decent pullback on an intraday basis. The S&P 500, 45.79 the last trade there, up a full percent. And the NASDAQ composite, the clear outperformer in today's session, you can see up by about 200 points, that's 1.5%, 14,540 the last trade there. One of the big reasons why that NASDAQ is outperforming in trading today has to do with those mega cap technology stocks and media type stocks that have been really hit hard over the course of the last several weeks here. Apple, though, up in trading today, up about one quarter of one percent. Microsoft and Alphabet, one to two percent gains there. Amazon is down just about a quarter of 1%, and Tesla's up 3.5%. So the five biggest companies in the S&P, five big members there in the NASDAQ as well, helping to drive some of those gains, at least in trading so far today. And if you're looking for one of the more volatile places where people are seeing some real outperformance, it's in the electric vehicle slash alternative energy industry. Take a look at these names. Sunrun, up 10%. Plug Power, up over 8-7%. SunPower, up 6%. Enphase Energy, Solar Energy, up about 5% as well. Now, on a year-to-date basis over the last couple of weeks and over the last year, we've seen some downtrends for many of these names. So those alternative energy and EV-type stocks have been really volatile as of late. They're big today. We'll see if it stays that way, Kelly, this afternoon. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Story of the afternoon very quickly becoming Peloton. The shares reopened after being halted twice. They're now down more than 20%. All of this after a CNBC.com scoop published in just the last 15 minutes or so that the company is halting production of bikes and treadmills as demand slows. That's according to documents obtained by CNBC. Take a quick look at the share price behind me. Peloton is trading down 25%, let's call it, to $24 a share. This company went public uh, at 29 in September of 2019. The opening trade was 27, so we are back below the IPO price and well below the highs of $161. CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Thomas broke the story this afternoon, and she joins me now. Wow, Lauren. All right, what can you tell us? Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Kelly. And like you said, really volatile trading uh, going on in that stock right now after we published that piece. So essentially, what Peloton is facing right now is it 
really wasn't able to determine what demand it was going to see coming out of the pandemic, right? It saw so much demand pulled forward last year, you know, sales up triple digits year over year. And now that's really waning um, and essentially falling off a cliff, right? And, and what I was able to see in these documents that I did obtain was, you know, Peloton is continuing to reduce its forecast for demand. Um, and it's in a position now where it has so much inventory on hand so much supply, but the demand from consumers just isn't there. So like you said, the, the news here really is that Peloton is temporarily pausing production of its bike, its bike plus, as well as its as, as its tread product um, for a period of time to try to reset those inventory levels. Um, again, you know, this is really a continuation of some news that is broken out over the weekend. Uh, we reported earlier this week that Peloton is now working with McKinsey uh, to look for ways to cut costs that is likely going to entail layoffs as well as store closures. And Lauren, what do you make of the news that just before this, they raised the price or they kind of added the delivery and setup charge into the price of the bike instead of making it, you know, part of the deal. Absolutely. No, it's a bit of a 180, honestly, because if you recall, last year, uh, Peloton actually lowered the price of its bike, right? And at the time, that was really a pitch to make it a more affordable option for consumers. I think the hope was that it would increase that total addressable market for Peloton to where it could increased demand. Um, but from, from what I've seen, again, from these internal documents is that hasn't really gone as planned, one. And now that it's facing you know, inflation, like many companies, it has to try to pass on some of those costs, those supply chain costs and, and set up fees to the consumer now. So the bike price is actually going to go back up uh, by about $250 and the tread will be about $350 uh, more expensive starting in February. You know, I, I feel for them somewhat because the pandemic is such an unprecedented uh, unprecedented situation. They bought, um, yeah. was it Precor? They bought yes. all of this extra, yeah. uh, all these facilities so that they could make enough bikes to keep up with demand. Now that seems right. to very quickly have reversed. Should they have just stuck with the bike? Because as I read your story, there's so many other products they're trying to launch. They have a strength project. They say there's been low email capture for that in the early days. We know the tread had its issues, a tragic death of a young child. So I'm just curious if they kind of did too much with the, the moment that they had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's consensus from folks that I talk to, especially if you look back uh, last year, they announced a $400 million investment in a facility in Ohio. Um, they just recently broke ground on that. It's not yet expected to be up and running until 2023. Now, the goal of that project was, again, to increase you know, manufacturing capacity. But now we're at a point, do they really need that capacity, right? So, so they have made these investments. They acquired Precor. Um, but at this point, you know, as demand is kind of settling out to maybe a more, more normal level, um, it's, it's unclear if they will really need that uh, capacity moving forward. And you mentioned the, uh, the guide, which is a strength product. It had been expected to go on sale last year. That's what I see in these documents. But it's actually been pushed out now to as late as April. Uh, Peloton is saying that it hasn't quite seen the interest from consumers online that it was expecting uh, when it made a media splash with that product recently. Incredible. Again, the shares are down at 24, um, which is probably an all-time low if they opened for trade a couple of years ago on their IPO at 27. So a huge, right. a huge sort of uh, 360 for them, we can call it, over the past few years. Lauren, thank you for your reporting. Thanks for being able to join us so quickly. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Lauren Thomas, for the full story, go to CNBC.com.
Let's switch gears now, broaden things out, get macro, and talk about the battle of the birds at the Federal Reserve. A group of hawkish policymakers who are preferring to move more quickly to raise rates and reduce the Fed's balance sheet is set against the more dovish officials who are right now more worried about the fragility of the economy. Steve Leisman is here with the bird's eye view of the new Fed. Steve? Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, with President Biden nominating three new members to the Fed board, there's the potential for a pretty drawn uh, policy debate that pits new Washington doves against a block of Midwestern hawks at issue everything from the amount and the pace of rate hikes and balance sheet reduction to bank regulation and the Fed's involvement in climate change. Fed Governor nominee Lisa Cook is a former Obama administration CEA economist and Philip Jefferson worked at the Fed and is now an economics professor at Davidson College. Sarah Bloom Raskin is a former governor now nominated to serve as vice chair of bank supervision. The street thinks looks at all of these and sees doves in their potential monetary policy. They could come up against a group of emerging Midwestern hawks here who include Fed Governor Waller. He was research director in St. Louis for the current bank president, Jim Bullard, Loretta Mester of Cleveland, and Esther George of Kansas City. They have typically been among the more hawkish Fed members, at least they were before the pandemic. All three presidents have the vote this year. In the middle... Put Fed Chair Jay Powell renominated for a second term and Fed Governor Lael Brainerd nominated now to be vice chair. So far, little space between them on monetary policy, although some differences when it comes perhaps to bank regulation. We don't know much about the new nominees. At zero rates and a $9 trillion balance sheet, there may not be much difference between hawks and doves, at least earlier on. The debate could emerge later this year, Kelly, over how far and how fast the Fed should go in tightening policy. Absolutely. We expect it to. Uh, they're under a lot of pressure. Steve, thank you. We appreciate our Steve Leesman reporting. And sure. a quick programming note, Treasury Secretary and former Fed Chair Janet Yellen will join Closing Bell for an exclusive interview today at 4 p.m. Eastern. My next guest warns the Fed's reduction of its balance sheet could have a big impact on the markets, but says that if growth stocks can turn in good earnings, they could still catch a bit here. Joining me now is Barry James, president of James Investment Research. Barry, welcome. Just so your thoughts, first of all, on the risks around this Fed tightening. Well, I see two things. There's a, in, in Chinese mythology, there's a, a dragon called Hung, the rainbow dragon. It's got two heads, though. That's the problem. One is COVID for us. The other is the Federal Reserve. The COVID head is going back to sleep, even though our company had to cancel a 50-year anniversary trip because of COVID. It is going to go back to sleep. It's the other one. It's the Federal Reserve. And we just look at that, uh, you know, the great, you know, reporting that you just had. At the beginning of the year, it went from an expectation of three hikes to four hikes. And what has the stock market done since? It's gone down. Next week, we get the information from the Federal Reserve of what they're really thinking. And Fed uh, Chairman Powell is very good at communication. So I don't think there's going to be much of a surprise. But if it's not above four times this, this coming year, I think the market will start to settle down. All right. So that, what would you do then in that investing environment? I, mean, I know you're not typically the kind of person who looks to growth stocks or you know, people right now are all tilting towards value and thinking that's the surefire trade for the year. Yeah, that's a great, great question, Kelly. Um, you know, in our, our James Balance Golden Rainbow Fund, we have stocks and bonds. On the bond side, uh, if I had cash, 
two years, wouldn't go beyond two years. That's the steepest part of the curve. You do something called writing the curve down. So over two years, you at least get your 1% interest back, uh, regardless of what happens with the Fed this year. On the other side, on the stock side, uh, we really do see that the reopening is going to be very important and higher interest rates is going to be very important. Um, the higher interest rates hurts growth stocks because they're based on the, the value of those future earnings and they're not worth as much today if interest rates go up. So more of the value, more of the cyclical types of names, uh, and that's what, what we would be favoring from, from energy stocks to finance stocks to industrial types of stocks at this juncture. Not that the others, you, you, you have to get out of them entirely, but uh, that's probably where the, the next wave really is going to be. Yeah, you guys like Pioneer, Regions Financial, and Eaton Corp. A final question, though, you do think this earnings season could be a period, and I wonder if the banks were already starting to tell us that. Their earnings missed in some cases, depending on the metric that you look at. The stocks have been down substantially, and... What do you expect as earnings season continues to play out could be a bit of a rotation here? Well, in the banking sector, uh, you're, you're right. Uh, we're seeing some misses, and that's mainly because of personnel costs. In order to attract and keep the people that they want, uh, the larger banks and regional banks are having to spend more. Uh, but if we look this, this year, so far this year, all those sectors down, one of the few sectors that's up this year is the finance sector, and that's because of the steepening of the yield curve. It does make things uh, you know, more profitable for a lot of these institutions. So I don't think I would, I would be a afraid of them at this point, and it might actually be some good entry points as these prices have come down uh, pretty much so far this year. All right, Barry, thank you. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Barry James with James Investment Research. Still ahead, Chinese stocks are leading the market after their central bank cuts a key lending rate. JD.com up more than 10 percent. Is this the start of a longer term rally? That's next. Plus a major tipping point for EVs. Bank of America says this is the year and has the names they think will come out on top. The exchange is back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange. A huge jump in Chinese stocks today after their central bank cut lending rates. Investors betting policymakers will ramp up easing to help sectors that got hit hard during months of regulatory crackdown and deleveraging. The China ETF, the KWEB, is tracking for its best month since January of 2021. It's up about 7% just today. Joining me now is Brendan Ahern. He's the chief investment officer with Crane Shares. Brendan, it's great to see you again. And this is certainly the good news a lot of these investors have been waiting for. But how good of a news is it if the economy is softening? Well, the economy is softening, Kelly, uh, but certainly we think that similar to what what the great scoop CNBC had on Peloton is what you're seeing in China and what will happen here is that you're having global stimulus come down. And that's that's been going to be a big problem and an issue for China, because a lot of the economy has been supported by export driven manufacturing. And over the last week, We've seen a movement toward monetary easing in China, and we also believe that's going to lead to a pickup in consumption, that domestic consumption has to offset the weakness we'll see in export-driven manufacturing, and that's going to be a great thing for the uh, e-commerce companies within KWEB. What prompted this rate cut? Well, China faces some challenges that China obviously put up a great GDP number in 2021, but Export-driven manufacturing has really held up really well, again, driven by global government stimulus. As that comes down, that export-driven manufacturing is going to slow. So China needs to hand the baton off to domestic consumption. We saw the loan prime rate cut. We saw the medium, uh, medium-term loan rate cut earlier this week. We believe that there's a bank reserve requirement cut coming in the next you know, maybe month, two months. Uh, a lot of the policymaker um, indication is toward more easing, more support of of the economy, which would signal to everybody that maybe the big crackdown is over. I mean, do you think that's what's happening as we start to approach that sort of party Congress later this year? Is it time for them to start shoring up the economy? Well, I, I think that they certainly they have to that that the economy has really been supported by this export driven manufacturing. And as that slows, what's going to offset it? Domestic consumption is something where the Chinese government can stimulate the consumer. They can provide incentives. They're also going to be monetarily easing to try to support the, the broader economy. But I think I think 100 percent you have a combination. You know, last year we dealt with Archegos. We dealt with the China Internet regulation. We've got the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. And then I think in November and December, we dealt with a lot of tax loss harvesting in the individual and individual stocks. And as that as these issues abate to varying degrees, investors are really underweight these names. And you kind of know the market does what's least expected. And a K-Web rally would certainly catch a lot of investors flat-footed. It would. And what else, finally, can you tell us about how much have people pulled out of this area? How under-invested might they be right now? We know a lot of global equity mandate, a lot of global emerging market mandate managers have been underweight China. They're overweight India. And particularly within China, historically, they're not buying Bank of China or, uh, you know, uh, energy stocks in China. They're buying the Alibabas, the Ten Cents, the JDs. So, so that historical 
overweight to the China internet space has become an underweight. And that's what makes days, really the last several days, where you see not only China outperforming India, but particularly these China internet names outperforming India by a significant measure, that's creating a lot of pain in the active EM world. Those managers need to balance, they need to catch up with this by coming into the names. Very, very interesting. It may help explain why we are seeing such a pop today. Crane shares back up to almost 40. Brendan, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Brendan Ahern with the K-Web. Coming up, finding a home to buy in this market is getting more difficult, and it's also getting more expensive thanks to rising mortgage rates. We'll look at what that means for the market. Plus, we're digging into one sector and hunting for yield. A look at five names that may not be on your radar coming up. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. everybody. Welcome back. We are seeing green in the markets today. The Nasdaq, which had been leading the way down, leading the rebound today with about a 1.2% gain. Dow's up 265. Let's get another check on Peloton. The shares are dropping substantially on a CNBC.com scoop that they're halting production of bikes and treadmills. This was according to eternal documents shown to CNBC. The shares are down 17%. They're at 26.40. So they're below the IPO price from late 2019, but above the all-time low of about $17 and change that we saw back at the pandemic lows in March 2020 before it absolutely took off to the upside. We'll continue to keep an eye on it. Meantime, the chip makers are actually higher today. The SMH ETF is having its worst week since March 2020. AMD, Micron, and OnSemi are underperforming today, but the SMH is managing about a two-thirds of a percent gain. It's up there around 287. AMD, by the way, is down 12% in January for its worst month since 2018. And Moderna is also underperforming. It's the biggest laggard in the NASDAQ 100 so far this year. It's down more than 30% in January for its worst month ever. It's down 50% in three months down a tenth of a percent today. It's back to 173. Still, stocks are mostly higher, so let's end on a positive note. We're seeing big rebounds and the rental and resale names like Poshmark, ThreadUp, Stitch Fix, Rent the Runway, and The Real Real. In the Poshmark's case, it's up almost 10 percent today. A lot of these names, though, still more than half uh, below their recent highs. Still ahead, Netflix, CSX, and Schlumberger all set to report results. We have the action, the story, and the trade on all three stocks in earnings exchange next. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon. The House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has requested an interview with Ivanka Trump. The committee says that it is seeking information on her communications with her father during key moments that day. Ghislaine Maxwell has formally requested a new trial less than a month after her conviction on sex trafficking charges. 
Her lawyers filed a motion for a new trial after a juror on the case said that he had been sexually abused as a child, but failed to disclose that information to the court. A new study says that big box stores could generate half the electricity that they need using rooftop solar panels. That's roughly enough to power nearly 8 million homes. The study says Walmart and Target have the biggest potential for solar energy production. And an update now, a British-Belgian teenager has become the youngest woman to fly solo around the world. 19-year-old Zara Rutherford touched down in Belgium this morning to complete her five-month journey. She visited 52 countries and covered some 32,000 miles. Kelly, I don't know if you remember, but you and I talked about this <laughs> when she was taking off. Uh, Time really flies, I guess. Amazing. That is an education. That is amazing. For sure. And a story off. to tell. Yes, for sure. Rahel, they, yeah, it's her, it's her college essay now. Uh -huh. <laughs> As if she needs that. Uh, thank you, Rahel. It's time for another edition of Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three stocks set to report. And we have to start with Netflix today. It's reporting after the bell, the street expecting earnings of 82 cents a share on $7.7 billion in revenue for the fourth quarter. The stock is 25% off its recent highs, and it's missed Wall Street's earnings estimates in five of the past seven quarters. Joining me now with the story on Netflix is our own Julia Borston and Grasso Global CEO and CNBC contributor Steve Grasso is here in his zip-up turtleneck under the blazer, Steve. It's a tough one to pull off. <laughs> Gotta keep great. you guessing. I love it. Uh, he's here. I went from the woodsman of Westchester to this now. <laughs> yeah. He's here to give us our trades today. Julia, kick things off for us. Well, Kelly, you know with Netflix, what's even more important than those top and bottom line numbers is subscribers. Netflix itself forecasts that it would add 8.5 million subs in the fourth quarter. Analysts are more skeptical. They're fo for forecasting 8.2 million subs in the for fourth quarter. But what is even more important than Q4 subs is the guidance that Netflix gives for the first quarter. Analysts are hoping that there will be 6.9 million subscribers projected. And Kelly, we know that that the vast majority of the subscribers, both in Q4 and in Q1, will be added internationally. And of course, to drive that, Netflix is investing a huge amount in content. They are expected to spend some $19 billion on content this year. That's an estimate, according to Wells, and that would be up 13% from what they spent last year. And then, of course, they've been rising prices here in the U.S. in order to compensate for some of those higher content costs. So we'll be listening for any commentary on what kind of churn they expect, whether they think their subscribers are willing to pay a little bit more for all those big shows, movies that they debuted in Q4 and that they have lined up for this year. Absolutely. So, Steve, this is a stock that there's arguments, we've seen them again today, about what the most important metric is for earnings. Is it subscriber numbers? Is it not? But the simple fact they missed on five of the seven past reports on EPS, you wonder if that's just as important these days. So I was going to say, yeah, I think you started it off perfectly because if, if it feels to me uh, that they're losing momentum, it feels to you the same thing. That's, what, that's how you pose the question like that. The other question I have is, I get that they have to raise prices and they do have pricing power. They are the king of content. But when you think about it, Kelly, I think they're trying to make up for slowing growth. So when they originally would raise prices, they were raising when they were the king on the block when it came to streaming. There's an unlimited amount of choices. And when you look at the technicals on the stock, they're right around support where it should be. But I can make the case that it could trade, I don't know, $30 lower, $40 lower. That equates to a 6 or 7% drop from now. So 
there, they, I know as a trader, you have to be prepared for the binary situation. It is at support. The stock could pop from here. I think it's more likely to pop short term, collapse maybe another five or six or seven percent. Hmm. All right, Julia, do you want to just respond to that? Because I've wondered the same thing about this price hike. You know, does it come from a position of strength or maybe of a little bit more weakness? Well, look, the analysts seem to think that it comes from a position of strength. About 70 percent of those analysts have a buy rating. Only less than 10 percent have a sell rating on this stock. But I think that what we're seeing here is this expectation that we'll see a big jump in subscribers in the fourth quarter. This would be the biggest subscriber gain number we've seen in a year. And that's because there was really a lull in the new content that was added in the first half of the year. And a lot of that was due to COVID delays. So the question now is whether the fact that they had a really strong content lineup in Q4 and whether they're going to, you know, and the expectation they're going to continue to have that kind of content lineup, whether that really helps drive the subscriber growth number and whether Netflix has become a must have. You know, there is a lot of concern right now that we could see churn more broadly among the streaming subscription services, Kelly. I mean, people only want to subscribe to so many and they've been paying for a number of them. So is Netflix one of the ones that people have to have? The expectation is that it probably will be. Maybe keep that, Disney Plus, one or two others, but maybe not six or seven that you might have signed up for in the depths of the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> that is a good uh, reminder of the Peloton story that's playing out today and, and what's happening to some of these darlings. Julia, thank you. We appreciate it. We're looking forward to these results from Netflix this afternoon. Steve, stick around. We'll talk some Schlumberger. Those shares have surged 50 percent the past year with the broader energy market. Analysts are looking for earnings of 39 cents uh, per share on just over six billion dollars in revenue when they report tomorrow morning. Pippa Stevens is here. That's Frank Holland. But Pippa is here with the story on this one. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Well, shares are up 50% in the past year, but the services companies have underperformed their upstream players. And with production now coming back online, they really do stand to benefit. And for Schlumberger specifically, this is a case of where size does matter. It's the largest player within the services group, and so they can benefit from their geographic footprint as well as their robust product offering. And so a few key things to watch here out of their report. The first is the company has said that their immediate priority is deleveraging the balance sheet. So investors will be focused on capital discipline and then free cash flow generation, another really important metric to watch amid this higher commodity price environment. And then also because of its geographic footprint, investors will be looking for commentary around how North America versus international operations are stacking up. And uh, finally, another area to watch is their digital business, which they say is an avenue of growth into the future. They're making acquisitions. They're making investments in tech companies in the bet that once again in this area, their size and scope can make them offer a differentiated product relative to their peers. All right. Uh, So a lot of things to watch here. Very interesting, especially didn't realize they were doing so much on that front, Pippa. Steve, what what about you? What would you do with this with a stock like Schlumberger? So when you look at the one-year performance on Schlumberger, it's up over 50%. One month, Kelly, it's up 34%. That wow. seems like a lot of front-loading based on, based on inflation, based on where we're at uh, on the political front, based on where we're at with, with uh, Chairman Powell raising rates. For me, I would sell the stock, and I'll give you a little more expansion on that. Think about this. Is there going to be, first of all, you know this better than anyone. Energy did nothing for five years. Right. Now we're starting to catch a bid. Now we're starting to catch a bid and everyone wants to jump on the energy bandwagon. But remember, this administration, right, wrong, or indifferent, wants to push green energy. 
there's not a whole lot of places for an SLB in their portfolio. They, by happenstance, created a heck of a rally because the supply-demand equilibrium was upset. But I think that needs to back off a little bit, if you will. I I will give you one other one, CRC. Sure. That's a company that's focused on carbon carbon, uh, recapture, carbon sequestration, he said. So (laughs) that's one that checks the box of ESG investing, and it's not in the name. People don't realize that they have that angle that's based on helping improve the environment because people don't think of that when you think of the normal fossil fuel complex. All right, California Resources. Corpipa, a final word on this one? Uh, Just, you know, we heard from Baker Hughes this morning and they did miss estimates, but they said that they are seeing an uptick from the higher oil price environment. So as these earnings roll out, we'll get a better sense of the health of the overall energy picture after a strong year to date rally. Great point. All right, Pippa, thank you. We appreciate it. Our Pippa Stevens. And finally, CSX, where analysts are expecting slowing growth for the second straight quarter, thanks to some supply chain and labor problems. The shares are down 5% to start the year, but a little higher today. And the expectation is for 41 cents a share of earnings on $3.3 billion in revenue. Frank Holland has that story for us. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. It's really me this time. <laughs> um, you know what? Maybe growth might be slowing. We're talking volume, but profits certainly aren't slowing. Analysts expect profits to increase by 19%, revenue to increase by 17%. The big thing to watch in this report is going to be container shipping. Last quarter, CSX saw growth in container shipping. That's where they get about 50% of their overall revenue. When we look at over at the uh, Port of LA and Long Beach, we're still seeing just around 100 ships either waiting to unload or slowing down their trip to those ports because they know there's gonna be congestion there. So we talk about pipeline a lot of times. We talk about pharmaceuticals or tech. Well, rails right now, they're trading at all time highs because they have one heck of a pipeline. Goods are coming in from Asia. They're moving them either from the West Coast to the center of the country in Chicago, or they're coming off of boats on the East Coast ports and going to stores here. There's plenty of demand out there. I don't think anybody you know is going to slow down their online shopping. But another thing on the other side is the labor cost and also the fuel cost. They saw their labor cost up 10% last quarter, their fuel cost up 90% last quarter. So rails, even though they're trading at all-time highs, not really immune to inflation. They face it as well. But uh, the other flip side of that inflation story is they have increased pricing power. Yeah, you know, it's a tricky one, uh, Steve, as Frank outlines it, because you'd think, okay, it's more of a value, industrial, cyclical, reopening name. That's where the market wants to be right now. But then it's also sort of facing these unique uh, headwinds. Yeah, so, and, and that's just it. So uh, as Frank did some good reporting on that, profits uh, you know, are up, revenues are up. They've been uh, able to reap the benefit of increasing their margins. But the actual products that they're, tra- that they're transporting has been on the decline for five years or, or thereabouts. Wow. How much longer can you bleed a bigger profit out of a shrinking pie? To me, I would say sell this one. And when you, th- when you think about this, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions, right? Is the supply chain going to be easing or increasing over the next six to eight months? And my guess is it's going to be easing. If it's going to be easing, then they're not going to be able to, to warrant the rates that they're charging right now. So that means that operating income should come in along with traffic, which has been trending lower. So on all fronts, to me, This is definitely a sell. Very, very interesting. I feel like I learned a lot today. Steve, thank you. Steve Grasso with our trades. Frank, thank you as well for that reporting. Frank Holland covering CSX this week. Up next, the past two months have been rough going for the EV stocks with Tesla down 9%, Rivian down by almost half. 
But one analyst says the EV market is at a tipping point. We'll discuss. Welcome back. 2021 was a big year for electric vehicle makers with Tesla hitting new records and Lucid and Rivian both going public. But all three stocks are down so far this year with Lucid and Rivian seeing the biggest declines. Rivian's down 35% just since Jan 1. But 2022 could bring big changes with major EV launches on deck, including from some of the legacy automakers. Here now with the names to watch is Bank of America auto analyst John Murphy. John, it's great to have you. Let's start with the stocks you think have the biggest upside opportunity here. Great. Thank, thanks for having me. Listen, I think the um, the new entrants being Lucid and Rivian um, have the highest upside potential, just given that they're starting from basically nothing. Um, but I do think that the incumbents being GM and Ford, uh, very specifically here in the U.S. market, have huge opportunity uh, that is underestimated as they transition their portfolios to EVs. So I think, you know, you, you know, as you're looking at this, you could take a lot higher risk um, in, in the, the, the new codes, uh, potentially, you know, have a lot higher reward. Um, or play it a little bit safer in companies that we think are underappreciated at GM and Ford. I would take your point on Lucid and Rivian if they didn't already have such a high valuation. You know, they came to market with people almost giving them the benefit of the doubt on their success over the next five years. It feels to me like they, they're just going to have to earn their way into those valuations, or maybe they're down enough that it looks a little more doable. Well, I mean, I think when you look at both those companies, uh, they clear three hurdles that we look at. We, you know, often cost, call the EV companies, um, you know, Autotech is the new biotech. And you kind of have to look at these companies on probability of success as opposed to just near-term earnings and focus on what they might ultimately earn five to 10 years out. And I think the first thing for those two companies is you have great founders. Um, RJ at, um, at Rivian and both and Peter Rawlinson at Lucid are very credible uh, leaders and founders of those companies. Second, I think they both have pretty good technology. And, and, and third, they have really great products that they are just beginning to commercialize. Now, the commercialization point is where things are tripping up here uh, in the near term in the SOP or startup production and these launch curves, which are always very difficult for these startup companies and even for the incumbents. So I think that's where the market's getting a little bit twitchy uh, is yeah. on you know, the startup production and the ramps here. Um, and they'll get through that over time. Let's talk about why you think this is a tipping point year for EVs and who might be the biggest losers from that. Is it the traditional automakers who are not aggressively investing to keep up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, the companies that are that are lagging behind investment are are, are, gonna, are going to lose over time. But I think this year, you almost have half of your product being launched that is that is EV uh, specific. So it's really a big year in, in 2022. And that will continue in 23 and 24. And we do think, you know, the penetration rates that we're looking for right now, 4% in 22, 5% in 23, and 6% in 2024, probably have some real material upside. It's going to depend on sort of capacity ramps at the automakers and then potentially what happens with government incentives. And the Build Back Better plan, which seems like it's kind of dead on arrival right now, may have be broken up in piecemeal. And I think the the incentives that the Biden administration um, and everybody's put forth in that plan really would spur EV demand and close the $9,000 cost gap that we're looking at right now in an EV versus ICE. So it's really important that the U.S. government step in here, um, you know, and make the U.S. Uh, industry competitive with what's going on in Europe and China. So we do think there's, you know, a lot of focus uh, from from the companies and product launches, but I think also the government really needs to step in here and really make sure the U.S. is competitive on the global stage. Yeah, and I'll be watching the oil price. Certainly, the higher it goes, the more people start to ponder the alternatives. Finally, Tesla. Where do you think those shares are headed this year? You know, listen, we have, a, we have a neutral on that. And I think, you know, Elon has done something um, that nobody else has done. He's really the tip of the spear on the EV uh, evolution and, and revolution. So, 
you know, I think that thing, you know, that company is, it will, will trade sideways uh, over time. Um, but there is, you know, real potential for fundamental success there. We just think a lot of that is priced into the stock at this point. All right. Fair enough. Trading around 1031 bucks, we'll call it today. John, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. John Murphy with B of A. Still ahead on the hunt for yield? We'll dig into one sector that pays more than double the S&P, and it's not energy. That's next. Welcome back. Utilities outperforming the S&P over the past three months. I know everyone can't wait to hear about this. Dom Chu is going to dig into the sector and the names to check out if you're on the hunt for yield. Dom? Why wouldn't we want to talk a lot about the smallest sector in the S&P 500? It's only about a two sub, two, two and a half percent weighting overall. The smallest sector out there, but it's known as the defensive one and one that pays dividend yields that are above market, above average. So let's take a look, first of all, at what's driving some of the action. Utilities, by the way, up 10 percent. It's still up, but it makes it the worst performing sector on a 12-month basis. If you take a look at that yield picture, though, it's the reason why many traders and investors still look towards this sector. Only energy, by the way, pays a higher dividend yield than the utilities. You can see overall the energy sector's dividend yield is about 35 or so percent versus the 2.9 percent or so yield that you can see there. If they were going to show me the graphic, yes, there it is right there. About 3.6 percent for sectors, for the energy sector, 2.9% for utilities, and then 1.3% for the S&P 500. Now, with that dividend yield, what are some of the best play- payers of that dividend yield that have not seen a massive decline in their stock? Well, take a look at PPL, a 5.6% yield, Edison International, 4.5%, Southern Company, 3.9%, Duke Energy, 3.9%, and Con Ed, 3.8% as well. All of those yields have been there despite the fact, or rather, because of the fact that they pay a dividend and have not been impacted by a falling stock price. So keep an eye on those particular stocks in the utility sector. It may not be all that attractive for some, and it's the smallest sector out there, but still, there are some virtues, and especially those dividend payments, Kel. Back over to you. Especially after how some of these stocks have done lately, Dom. I think people go, maybe that sounds pretty good, Uh, Dom Chu. Up next, 16%. That's how much higher home prices climbed in December from the previous year. We'll dig into the housing supply issue, and with rates on the rise, where prices are headed. As we go to break, let's do some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. American and United are both lower despite the airline carriers reporting narrower than expected losses in the quarter. Both CEOs joined Squawk Box this morning with an update on their numbers and a forecast. We're actually seeing now uh, net bookings uh, back in the 80% level uh, where they were prior to Omicron. So people are I believe, uh, certainly have gotten to the point where they believe this is going to be behind us before too long, and they're, and they're having confidence in, in travel plans, uh, certainly in the future. We've certainly bottomed uh, from the Omicron impact, uh, and they're looking stronger, particularly as you get to the end of February and March and beyond. Uh, and our forecast is that we'll be profitable in the second quarter. Welcome back. Existing home sales dropping in December, but prices skyrocketing from the year before. Diana Olick is here to dig through the data. Diana? 
Well, Kelly, last year was incredibly strong for home sales, but December disappointed. December sales of previously owned homes dropped nearly 5% from November and were down 7% year over year. Now, these sales were based on contracts signed in October and November, and that's when mortgage rates had popped up from their summer lows. They were still about 60 basis points lower than they are today, though. So it probably wasn't the rates, more the supply, or I should say lack thereof. It was a new record low, less than a million homes for sale at the end of December, just a 1.8-month supply. Six months is considered a healthy, balanced market. That caused price gains to re-accelerate, up nearly 16% year-over-year, and for the full year, another record high price was set, $346,900. So what do we make of all this? Higher mortgage rates are going to hit affordability hard and should cool both sales and prices this year. The one outlier, though, is this crazy low supply. It's not going to let prices cool that much, and it's going to push single-family rental demand and prices, which are already super hot, even higher. Kelly? And pinch on affordability there as well. Diana, we appreciate it. Thank you, Diana Olick. For more on this low housing supply and these record prices, let's bring in Andy Walden. He's director of market research at Black Knight. Andy, welcome. Does your data corroborate this, and where are we going from here? Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, everything Diana said is, is spot on there. We're seeing the same thing when we look into our collateral analytics data set, which is kind of a real-time stock ticker of what's going on in the housing market. We're seeing things reaccelerate late last year as well for all the reasons that Diana just mentioned. The affordability was still relatively strong at the time. That's changed a little bit here as we moved into 2021. But again, it's bumping into that record low levels of, of supply out there. And the supply issue has actually worsened as we move toward the tail end of 2021. Is there anything that can be done to help on the supply front? It, it, all of the things are pointing in the in the wrong direction at the moment, right? We look at what's going on with new build activity and the supply challenges there. But really the broader issue that you're seeing there is those traditional home sellers out there that are really the ones that feed the housing market. We're going on two plus years of a deficit of, of listings out there in the housing market. It's gotten a little bit better, but we're still running double digit deficits from where we should be for this time of the year. And that suggests prices will keep going up even as rates go higher, which what does history say about how that pattern usually plays out? Yeah, and if you look at affordability, we've really seen some tightening here over the first three weeks of 2022. 30-year rates are up almost a half a percent so far this year. If you look at the average buyer out there shopping for a home, it's costing them $330 more per month today than it was at the same time last year. So really starting to see the affordability tighten. We're now kind of, if we're looking for historical comparisons, we're in that 2008-ish time uh, frame. So we're definitely in a, a portion of the affordability curve where we should be seeing home price growth slow down. And we likely will see that here in coming months. But it's held higher than it otherwise would have been because of all of those supply shortages that we just talked about. Yeah. And like Diana was saying, if it pushes people into the rental market, they're going to face high rents there as well. It eats into their budget then to be able to buy a house. It's a tricky situation. On the refi piece of it, which I know you guys also track, what's the latest there? I have to imagine that activity is drying up and that would probably be a headwind for a lot of the banks and issuers. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at where we were from a, a, a refinance incentive perspective entering this year, we still had about 11 million refinance candidates out there. Still a pretty strong population. Over the last three weeks, given that almost half a percent rise in rates, we've seen that cut to just over 6 million at this point. So certainly some headwinds, strong from a historical perspective, but nowhere near the volumes that we've seen throughout 2020 and 2021. If you had to make a guess, how much higher do you think home prices are going from here? 
It's really tough to say, right? And I think a lot of that story is going to be told here over the next couple of months as we see interest rates move and as we see affordability move. But I think the big storyline that's going to drive home price growth this year is going to be that inventory. Do we see any kind of meaningful rebound or is this deficit here for the foreseeable future, which would lead to higher than, than otherwise expected home price growth? Yeah. Count the for sale signs in the neighborhood. That's your indicator. Yeah. Andy, thanks. Yeah. Good to check in with you. Andy Walden yeah, of Black Knight. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.